Good morning. Now, how many of you, as I walked up, thinking that is the biggest Jewish person I've ever seen in my life? I get a lot of that. We are in the final day of an eight-day feast known as Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And on that feast, there is a ceremony where for seven times, the priests walk around the altar and pour water and cry out to God for provision. And on this particular day, uh, as they do that, it's a solemn occasion, but it's also an occasion of great joy because there's the realization that, that God has provided uh, for his people. And with all of that water being poured out and everybody quiet in the temple, this rabbi stands up. Everybody's seated. And he stands up following this water libation ceremony on this great day of the feast, as it's called. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Could you imagine, with all of that water being poured out, Jesus gets up and asks the question, is anyone thirsty? And then he says, if you come to me and accept what I have for you, out of your being will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us that he was talking about the Holy Spirit. So this Feast of Tabernacles has great meaning for us who are believers in Jesus. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's for everyone. And I want to look today at the prophetic uh, events coming that relate to the feasts of God. So if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Now that always gets a reaction from people, but Turn to Leviticus, and we're going to be looking at uh, three fall feasts, but I, I want to give you kind of an overview of this 23rd chapter of Leviticus. And uh, as we go to that, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, we come to you, Lord, rejoicing. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful worship that brought us into your presence. And Lord, now we ask that your spirit fill us and guide us and lead us and open our hearts to your word so that we may all be doers of your word and not hearers only, that we might hear the word, apply it to our hearts and to our lives, and we will give you all the honor and glory for you're the only one worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. How many of you uh, keep a calendar? How many of you are paperless now? Uh, you're crazy like I am. Uh, I am, I just turned 60 years old and have a son who is a graphic artist and a computer geek. And he has convinced me to go paperless. So I have an iPhone. I haven't bought the new one yet, but I'm sure my son's going to convince me to do that. Uh, for my 60th birthday, my office staff chipped in and bought me an iPad. And when my Dell crashed earlier this year, my son convinced me to buy a Mac. So when I did that, and my son lives in Austin, Texas, when I did that, 
my son posted a picture of me on Facebook playing with my apple at the Apple store, and he wrote this on Facebook, my father finally drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and for those of you who are involved with Apple, you know what that means. But all kidding aside, I have a, an assistant who I am dependent upon to put down all my appointments in my calendar. Sometimes I do it, but most of the time it's my assistant. And should she miss something, I'm in big trouble because I have appointments and I'm traveling literally all around the world and I need that calendar. Now for believers, uh, we might ask kind of a silly question, a rhetorical question, does God have a calendar? And the answer is yes. And that's here in Leviticus 23. God's appointment calendar is right here. We can see God's plan for mankind through Jesus our Lord and Savior and Messiah. And we could follow it through these feasts of the Lord. So let's read, beginning in verse 4 of Leviticus 23, uh, God's appointment calendar. It said, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations you sh which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. So this is God's appointment calendar. And if you take it, I would say, an overview of it, we can look at all of these various feast days and how Jesus fulfilled them. And the first feast day, we're not going to look at it in detail. I want to save that for the fall feast. But the first feast day is Passover. Passover is a picture of redemption. Redemption by the blood of the Lamb. The first Passover, the children of Israel were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And when Jesus came and died on Passover, what we commonly call Good Friday, he redeemed us from slavery to sin. So Passover fulfilled with Jesus' death. The second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven, a picture of sin in the Bible. And Jesus, as he led a sinless life, we look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a reminder that in order for Jesus to be the Passover Lamb, in order for him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he had to live a perfect and sinless life. Jesus fulfills the Feast of Unleavened Bread with his sinless life. And then the third feast, immediately after, is the Feast of First Fruits. So you have Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you have First Fruits. And First Fruits comes on the day after the Passover Sabbath. So if the Passover Sabbath would be on Friday night into Saturday night, if Jesus died on Friday, as I believe, or if some of you want to take three full days, that's okay, as long as you recognize that Jesus died for your sins. But on the first day of the week, something happened. The first day of the week that Jesus died. Anybody have any idea what happened? Not a trick question, I promise. What happened? He rose. So the resurrection of Jesus fulfills the first of feast of first fruits, and Paul says Christ, the first fruits of the dead. And if you look at that, uh, there's an implication there. If he's the first fruits, then there's going to be second fruits and third fruits and fourth fruits and ten millionth fruits and you name it. So what that's telling us, uh, if those of you who are asking, well, what's the resurrection going to be like when I rise from the dead? Just look at Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels. He had flesh, he had bone, and he can appear in a locked room in an instant. It's going to be cooler than Star Trek, I promise you. And then the question I'm asked, and I'm sure Pastor Ron, you're asked the same question. What are we going to look like? 
Well, from the Bible, we get two things. Number one, we're going to know one another. And number two, a lot of Bible scholars believe we're going to look like Jesus did. So if Jesus was 30-ish when he died and rose, uh, then regardless of how old we are, uh, when we have a resurrected body, a perfect body, there is the probability, I would say, we don't really know for sure, that we'll sort of look like Jesus did. So I have to tell you that 30 looks pretty good to me. Some of you who are younger might be thinking, yuck, I'd rather stay this age. But believe me, when you're 30, that's sort of the prime of your life. And that's probably what we're going to look like. So we have three feasts that were all fulfilled with Jesus' death, his sinless life, and his resurrection. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of first fruits. Following that is the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Sevens. You count seven sevens and add one day following the Passover Sabbath and you come to 50. And in Greek, 50 is Pentecost. We know that Pentecost was fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached to Israel the first time under the power and direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 souls got saved that day, primarily Jewish souls, and the birth of the church took place. And the world hasn't been the same since. So those four feasts have all been fulfilled exactly on their day. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. We are now in what's called the harvest time. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. At the end of the harvest time comes three fall feasts each of which I believe prophetically have not happened yet. The Feast of Trumpets today celebrated as the Jewish New Year, even though it says it's the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month. That, I believe, points to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. At the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. So the Feast of Trumpets, I believe, is pointing to this next prophetic event, which is the rapture of the church, and it's a beautiful picture of the ancient Jewish wedding. And that ancient Jewish wedding, all of the legal documents are signed, uh, the bride and the groom are what's known as betrothed, uh, but what's left is the actual wedding ceremony and the wedding night time when there is great intimacy between the bride and the bridegroom. Well, in the ancient Jewish wedding, the bridegroom goes away, and he actually goes to prepare a place for his bride, and when that place is ready, he returns. Jesus in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I'm going, you can't come right now, but when it's ready, I will return. So Jesus talks about that, and that return is the rapture of the church. And then we have the last two feasts. The Day of Atonement, now the most solemn day in the Jewish year. The Day of Atonement is the one day out of the year where Israel understood they were in right relationship with God. The only day. And it was the only day that the high priest was able to get beyond the veil. Remember 
when Jesus died, what happened to the veil? It was torn. Now, when we hear the word veil, typically we think of a bridal veil, something soft and delicate and perhaps easy to tear. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was a hand's breadth wide. And you can see I have a pretty big hand. But imagine a burlap-like material as thick as my hand. You would have had to get a chainsaw to cut that thing in two. And yet that's what happened. Literally the hand of God tore it, and then symbolically, what happened? Now when the writer of Hebrews says, let us come boldly to his throne of grace, there's no longer a separation. But on the Day of Atonement in ancient times, only the high priest was able to get beyond the veil. So the Israelites trusted completely in the high priest to make atonement for their sins by doing a whole bunch of different offerings for himself, for his family, for his people, for the temple. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies following that and continue to do these offerings. And his robe was completely different on the Day of Atonement. It was totally white. And on the bottom of the robe, they sewed golden bells in the form of pomegranates. So that when the priest was ministering inside the Holy of Holies, he would make noise. And think about this. Going into the presence of God can be detrimental to your health. We know that Aaron's two sons offered strange fire, the book of Leviticus tells us. It was all about attitude. They came in really not caring, thinking that they could just about do anything. And God struck them dead. So you could see why they wanted those bells on the bottom of the robe to just understand that the priest was still alive making atonement for their sins. It was the only day that they knew they had right relationship with God. And if you look at verse 27 of Leviticus 23, there's something that accompanies it. It says, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So in addition to this national day of atonement, where all Israel for that day was saved, it was accompanied by the afflicting or the humbling of the soul. And the tradition became to make it a day of fasting, to really focus on God. Now, we know that Yom Kippur, prophetically, is still to come. Paul writes in the end of Romans chapter 11, and thus all Israel will be saved. There will be a day of atonement in the future. Now, does that mean that every Jewish person who's ever lived is going to be in heaven? I have to tell you, if I found a way, I would embrace it in a moment. I've been to way too many funerals of loved ones who died without Jesus. But the reality is it's talking about a future time when those alive at the time that Jesus returns will see him, will recognize who he is, and all Israel will turn to him as their Lord and Savior and Messiah. So to see that event prophetically, turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. And it, the context of this is that it's at the end of a period of time known as the Great Tribulation. Now just to give you a quick overview. We talked about the Feast of Trumpets when the church, those in Christ, get raptured up and all the ones who've died before us meet us in the air. A great reunion. Try to imagine 
I mean, think about this. Imagine 50 to 100 million people on the earth disappearing all at once. In all different kinds of places, driving cars, up in the air in airplanes, in the workplace, disappearing. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Not the blinking of an eye, you can measure that. In the twinkling, instantaneously. The world goes into great chaos. And out of that chaos, they turn to one who appears to be Messiah-like, the Bible tells us. A false Messiah, who we call the Antichrist. And it's during this time that the Antichrist comes to power. The book of Revelation names him as the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the one riding the white horse. And he literally comes to power without having to fight any battles. He's literally given the power to rule the world because they're looking for answers. What is the world going to say when all of the Christians in the world disappear? And from my understanding, all of those who's not, who've not reached an age of accountability, all of the mentally handicapped, incapable of making a decision on their own, all disappearing. What's the world going to say? I've thought about this. And one day I was in the supermarket with my wife online at the cashier's line. And there, you know, on the cashier, there's all these tabloids. And there's a National Enquirer. And on the National Enquirer, there's a picture of a big flying saucer with two aliens who kind of look like E.T. And in the middle was Elvis, the way the artist figured he would look like today. So here's my theory. They're going to say space aliens came and took those nasty Christians away so that Elvis could make his big return. <laughs> but all kidding, kidding aside, you can see where some of the science fiction movies are going, how that's going to be the answer. But they turn to this guy, and seven years of tribulation begin when he signs a peace treaty with Israel. And at the end of those seven years, after half the world dies, according to Revelation, and two-thirds of the Jewish people, he brings one final battle. That's the context of Zechariah 12. So let's look at it. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Listen to this. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. All nations of the earth. So for those of you who like to ask questions, what's the first question that pops into your mind? Especially in light of the fact that we have a presidential election coming up. Does that mean us? I get, that asked, I get asked that question all the time. Does that include America? And tell me, have you ever heard of a de definition of the word all that doesn't mean everyone? Every nation on the earth is going to be gathered against Israel under the direction of the Antichrist. What about America? Well, I'm one of those who believe that the Antichrist comes according to the 
book of Daniel out of the, a reconstituted Roman Empire. And it's very likely that we get part of that Roman Empire, that we fall into place under the power of the Antichrist. We'll have to wait and see about that one. But all the nations of the world are gathered against Israel, and they're gathered in a place called the Jezreel Valley. How many of you have been to Israel? Do you remember going up on Mount Carmel, on Mount Carmel, where uh, Elijah, the prophet, fought the prophets of Baal? And you look down, and you look down into this valley, and it was a huge expanse, about 30 miles long and about five miles wide. President, uh, General Patton called it the perfect battlefield. This is where they gather to lay siege against Israel. And this is where God intervenes. And it begins in verse 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its riders with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse, every horse of the peoples with blindness. So there's going to be confusion in this attacking army. Confusion to the point where they begin fighting one another. And then God gives strength to Israel as it's surrounded by its enemies. And we've seen that over and over and over again today, where Israel, against overwhelming odds, continues to survive and thrive, and absolutely under the power of God. Unfortunately, some of the Israelis think it's because they got such a great army and the best intelligence force in the world. But without God, there would be no survival. God wants them to survive. And verse 5 says, The governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. So they turn to God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile. You don't want to have a fire pan in the woodpile. It consumes it. And like a fiery torch in the sheaves. Imagine dry wheat and throwing a fiery torch in the middle. Also, total consumption. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. So, despite overwhelming odds, Israel is able to fight off this, this attack that is trying to destroy them. Verse 7 says, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not be, become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who was feeble among them. In that day shall be David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. God takes very seriously when someone goes against the apple of his eye. He will defend Jerusalem. In that context, we have the return of the Lord and the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. Look at a few verses down, chapter 13, verse 1. Again, we're talking about this day called the Day of the Lord. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And this is parallel to the next verse. So there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a fountain. Remember what Jesus said? A fountain of living waters. I will pour a fountain for sin and uncleanness. This is when all Israel will be saved, those alive 
at the time that he returns. Now look at verse 10. Remember Yom Kippur in Leviticus. National atonement for Israel accompanied by the afflicting or the humbling of the soul. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So again, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then they, referring to Israel, will look upon me, God speaking through the prophet, whom they have pierced. Now, Zechariah wrote this 500 or so B.C. Crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. And that Hebrew word there literally means to be pierced through with a sharp object like a knife or a nail or a spear or a spike. They, Israel, will look on me, God speaking, whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. Interesting change of person there. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So as Israel sees Jesus returning, literally coming back to earth, they'll see the nail scars in his hands, the pierced one, and the nail scars in his feet. Turn to chapter 14, because Zechariah has a number of parallel portions describing this event. Chapter 14 follows the description of how so many are going to perish in this final battle. And then we read in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So if you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, after he gave his final words, left the ground. I know today's the big balloon thing. Just like a big balloon. He disappeared into the clouds. And as we meet the Lord in the clouds, now he comes down to earth, and the place that he lands, the place where his feet first touch, are the Mount of Olives. And for those of you who've been to Israel, you probably remember going to the Mount of Olives and looking across the Kidron Valley and seeing the eastern gate. The Mount of Olives faces Jerusalem on the east, and the eastern gate is there. The eastern gate is an unusual gate. The wall that was built surrounding the old city of Jerusalem was built in the 1400s by the Turks. And there's the eastern gate. And instead of a door there, a big door to open, it's cemented shut. Why? Well, if that's where Jesus enters Jerusalem, what better way to keep somebody out than cementing the door shut? Then they can't open the door, right? Archaeologists have actually dug under the wall now and have found another wall built by the Muslims in about the 7th or 8th century. And guess what? Another gate, cemented shut. They read the Bible. And then just to make sure, since Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, they build a cemetery in front of the eastern gate. Because, you know, a Jewish priest can't walk through a cemetery. It would be defiling. So does anybody think that's going to keep Jesus out? So look what happens when his feet touch the ground, when he lands on earth. And I think the wording, his feet will stand in the Mount of Olives, tells us they'll see the nail scars in his feet as well as in his hands. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. When Jesus comes to earth, there are cataclysmic 
topographical events. In other words, the earth changes dramatically. And the first thing that happens is the Mount of Olives splits from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain moves toward the north, half of it toward the south. And that valley is a place where those Jewish people who were alive at the time Jesus returns sees him, recognizes that he is indeed their Savior, Lord, and Messiah, and they have a place of escape from the people who are chasing after them. It says, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then listen to this. Then thus the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Who's that? That's us. Remember I said, after the legal documents are signed and we're betrothed, the only thing left is the wedding ceremony. We've already gone through that with Jesus when we were brought up to be with him. All of those who are in Christ, the bride of Christ, we have that wedding ceremony. And eventually we're going to have the big party, the wedding feast. But that doesn't happen yet. We return to earth as glorified saints, as holy ones. And for those of you, my wife comes from a Catholic background, for those of you who come from a Catholic background, the word saint sometimes is confusing. We are saints. The Greek word hagias means holy ones, those who are set apart. And when we return to earth, we are glorified. Sin has been dealt with. All the stuff that you struggle with, you're no, no, no longer going to have that struggle. And if we return to earth looking like we did when we were 30, for those of us older than 30, for those of us, if you're alive at the time that this event happens and you're raptured before you turn 30, you'll look a little bit older, but it will be cool, I promise. <laughs> but I have to tell you, my whole adult life I have struggled with my weight. And I've always told people I'm just not tall enough. That's all. Well, no more struggle with weight. No more struggle with the things that you struggle with. We are, will be perfect saints with him, fighting that final battle. And in the end, we read in verses uh, 6 and 7, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Because Jesus is, his holiness is, is fully there. The Shekinah glory is on the earth. And in that day it shall be, remember what Jesus said, rivers of living water on Sukkot. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. The Spirit just pours out half toward the eastern sea, half toward the western sea, in both summer and winter it shall occur. And then we read in verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. The Lord will be king. So as he establishes his throne on earth, fulfilling the promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would have a descendant, sitting on his throne forever. We read in verse 16, and we'll conclude with this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem 
shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep or to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. We're going to celebrate every year the Feast of Tabernacles with Jesus. John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then he writes at the end of the chapter, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that certainly was true the first time he came. But it's also going to be true the second time he came. He is going to be physically with us. And that word dwelt in John 1 actually means tabernacle. He's going to tabernacle with us. And all of the nations, all those who surrounded Israel and the believers that came out of those nations will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. God's appointment calendar. Jesus' first coming, Jesus' second coming. And it all culminates with this final feast, the kingdom feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting, when Jesus enters Jerusalem the first time, do you remember he's riding on the colt of a donkey? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, daughter of Zion, behold, daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming. Humble, lowly, riding on the colt of a donkey. Do you remember why? Remember what the people did? They threw down palm branches, which is what you build the tabernacles with. And what did they cry out? Hosanna! Lord, save us! Baruch b'shem Adonai! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the son of David. They recognized what Jesus was doing, coming as the king. And because of this prophecy in Zechariah, what were they doing with those palm branches? Celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what Palm Sunday is about. It's not about the palms. It's what the palms represent. So as we conclude, I want to ask you a question. Jesus, on the last day of the feast, gave an invitation. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let me ask you, are you thirsty on this Feast of Tabernacles as we celebrate this last day, the great day of the feast? Are you thirsty? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good, experienced all that the Lord has? If the answer is no, let me encourage you to pray. Ask the Lord. If you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior, by all means, do that. You don't have to go through any specific ceremony. It's a personal thing between you and God. Acknowledge that you're not perfect and only by accepting the fact that Jesus died on Passover, that he died for your sins. He rose from the dead so that you can be one of those fruits following that first fruits of the dead. By accepting what he did, you can have eternal life. If you need to do that, by all means do that. But if you're thirsty, and even believers get thirsty sometimes, the only place to have that thirst quenched is through Jesus. So if you need to come to him, do that this morning.